0: everybody, good afternoon. Let's let's get rolling, I'm glad you're back today. It's good to see you. I have two, there are two different times that my wife has given me permission to lie to her. Uh, One is anytime I come out to Pepperdine and she asks, how is it? I'm I'm allowed to, to lie. So yesterday I'm driving, she's like, well, tell me what the scenery's like. And I'm like, well, baby, it's so dark, the clouds, you can't see anything. Can't see the ocean, so she gets it at that point. The other is, whenever I travel, if somebody takes me to eat something really nice, I'm allowed to lie about what I ate. Because when my boys were three and one, I was gone on a trip, and where I went, there were nine young preachers together on this trip, and a person sponsored for us to go eat at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. First time I've ever had Ruth's Chris. This was about ten years ago, so my kids were three and one. So I call home, and I'm like, baby, you will never believe the steak I just ate. And not only did I describe it, I sent her pictures of the steak. <laughs> and all I could hear on the other side of the phone was my wife crying because she said, right now I have applesauce dripping down my right shoulder. I've changed multiple diapers over the last hour. I haven't even been able to eat in the last six hours. So now anytime either one of us travel, we lie to each other, and we're like, oh, you know, we just ate Burger King today, and that's, that's great. Uh, hey, I don't mind a 2 o'clock session, but I know it's been a long day, so hey, just real quick. There's a story I tell any time I speak at a place after lunch or any time I speak at a church that has an early service. I usually will tell the story, and it goes like this. True story. Luke Norsworthy, who some of you know, one of, my, one of my closest friends, has been for a long time. We were both in Abilene together in grad school. And early on, he was preaching at a small little church of 15 people. I was preaching at a church south of Abilene of about 100 people. And it was the Sunday in between Christmas and New Year's, and Luke said, Hey, can you come preach for me on a Sunday? And I said, Sure. He said, Hey, man, it's a church of 15. If one family's gone, the church is going to be down to seven people. So one family made up half the church. And he said, I need you to go and do a combined class. I need you to preach a sermon. So I went, prepared to do a combined class and a sermon. All 15 people were there, so that one family wasn't out of town. But when I showed up, I also found out I was a song leader for the day. I had the opening and closing prayer. I had the prayer for the bread cup and offering, and not only that, I was the only person in the church mobile enough to pass trays that day. I did everything <laughs> in the worship service. It was a room about this size, but it was 15 people, so I had to pass trays by like running around the size, around because everybody's still scattered out. They had to sit in their pew they had been in for years. Everything was fine except the song leading part, because that was a gift that just skipped over me. Everybody else in my family has it. So I stood up to lead the first song. I had the Church of Christ cadence, right? You know, you call out the song by saying the full number, and then you break it down in a single-digit form. You know, please turn in your hymnal to number 806, 806. All right, so I had that down. And then I was like, you know, what do you do? And all my life, I've seen people, Larry Tittle, I've seen song leaders in churches I've been a part of, and they move their hands. So I started moving my hand to try to lead this song. Not joking, my wife was on the fourth row, and my wife, I look, and Casey did this right here. She put one hand in the air, the other hand on top of that hand, and made a motion down. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I won't go with a hand today. And my wife sat there laughing through the whole song service, because I don't, I don't read music. I didn't know how to start songs or nothing. There's a guy in that church named Cowboy who slept through everything that day. He didn't just sleep through the sermon. He slept through songs. I'm not exaggerating. He was sleeping when I prayed for the bread. I had to nudge him to give him the cracker. He fell asleep between the bread and the cup. I had to wake him up again for the cup. He slept through everything. But after that church service, I saw a cowboy walking down to me. And I was like, oh, my goodness. This guy's about to shake my hand and say, great job, young man. So I was prepared to respond with, what did God speak to you? What did you enjoy about the worship service? Because I knew Cowboy slept through everything. But Cowboy slipped me a $50 bill. So I decided just to let it go, all right? So... <laughs> I usually tell that story if I'm ever doing like an 8 o'clock worship service or a time like right now where people just, you've eaten a good meal. And I just tell people, you know, I've been paid off before. So if you want to fall asleep, that's cool. Just let me attend twenty fifty. So I told this in a church I was preaching at in Dallas a couple of years ago. They had a 7.45 or 8 o'clock worship service. So I told that story. Afterwards, a guy came up to me in that church. And this guy was in tears. He was probably in his 50s before that day, he had not been in church in over 20 years. Yet his brother invited him to come to church that day. And it was a church that invited me to come in and talk about the power of the resurrection, what it means to be a church that lives through the community and things like that. So I preached this sermon. And this guy was just so moved that day how God had spoken to his life. He said, man, I know you were joking when you told that story at the beginning of your sermon that a guy gave you $50, and he said, I don't, I don't know how else to respond to God today, but I reached in my pocket, I have $175 in cash, and I think you would do something better with this than I, than I could. So he gave me $175. My first thought was, I've got to tell this story more often. Because <laughs> it's gone from $50 to $175, and, and what's next? This, this is a great story. I need to, I need to tell this everywhere I go. But then my second thought was, he, he entrusted me with this money. You know, he's like, I trust that you'll do something better with it than I did. So we were able to go and do something redemptive in Memphis. So I hope you stay awake, but if not, all right, slip me something. That's seven minutes I just wasted telling stories about lying to my wife and, and about getting paid money. All right, I want to I wanna talk more today about what it means for the local church to engage in social issues in communities around us without losing our soul. And I think that's so important. Uh, in a Memphis context, we've got probably as many churches almost anywhere. We have a ton of churches. Some people will say we have more churches in Memphis than we have gas stations. We have, all, we have a bunch of churches. And it seems that in my experience that churches that are really good at evangelism are really poor at compassion and justice. And churches that focus on compassion and justice aren't very good at evangelism. And if you were in, actually, in Siegman's class this morning, they talked a lot about, about evangelism. And these are two of my closest friends, and we talk a lot about this. Yesterday at lunch we were processing this because we don't want to help lead churches that are really good at evangelism, that we're inviting people into the heart of God and a deeper covenant, yet we're not equipping people to be people of service and compassion and to live incarnationally and to take seriously everywhere you go. And we also don't want to focus so much on justice that we, that we aren't trying to equip people that, hey, you're, you're supposed to go out into the world and invite people into a better story. Um. So I live, in, I live in Binghampton. It's a community in Memphis where my family, my wife and I, this is where we've raised our kids now for eight years. It's an under-resourced community. It happens that the community we live in, it's a poor neighborhood. It's probably 95% African-American. And this has been a, a great way for us to try to raise our boys with a different set of values, not necessarily a better set of values, but a different set of values. But it's also forced me through conversations with my neighbors as I get to know them better to think deeper about the challenges many people face in the world and what it means to be a local church that comes alongside of them. Many people in my community have a deep faith. They, they have churches they're connected to. They have a deeper faith. And, and my wife and I, like we learn a lot more from them probably, and they learn from us. They take better care of us a lot of times, and we take care of them. But there have been a couple of issues that have happened in, in, my, in my neighborhood that have made me think in a way I've never had to think before. There was one, I live on a corner of a pretty busy street in my neighborhood, a lot of foot traffic. And there was one night, probably around 10 30 or 11, I heard tires screech outside and I opened the windows, the, the blinds, to see a car crash into a telephone pole on the corner right outside of my house. The telephone pole didn't fall over, but uh, it was, it, it broke and it was leaning a little bit. And I wasn't fearful that it was gonna fall on my house, but this was gonna create a hazard. There are people who walk a lot, so. I call MLGW. If you're in Memphis, you don't get to choose what your energy uh, utility company is. Everybody is MLGW. I call up MLGW. They send someone out. They said, we'll have somebody out in the next couple of days to fix it. The next couple of days, I have neighbors walking by, and they see the pole, and they're like, man, you know your pole's broken. I said, yeah, it's broke, but I called, the, I called MLGW two nights ago, and they said, they're coming out this week. They're going to fix it. My neighbor started to laugh at me. And They said, you, you haven't been here very long. I said, what do you mean? They're like, Watch how long it takes to fix it. A week went by. I make another call. It got to week six. And finally, I used my my power. I knew somebody, connected high up at MLGW. What was told to me from someone else who worked for MLGW is that this person said, I'm not speaking from corporate, but the thing is you're not a neighborhood of priority. Six weeks went by. And finally, I have make a connection who calls someone, they come out, they fix my light pole. And some things that my neighborhood has taught me is, like many of us, we want to work hard about social relationships and engaging with people in the world, but sometimes we don't know how to navigate like, systematic change. And to be honest, like, if you grow up in a privileged position, whether it's because of your skin color or economics, you don't have to question a system if you've benefited from it all your life. We live on a busy street, and there are times cars will fly 60 miles per hour down this street, and we have a lot of kids. So I went to some of my neighbors, and I said, hey, we need to write a petition. I'll put it together. We need some speed bumps in our neighborhood. And again, they're like, Josh, we've tried that for 40 years. It just doesn't work. Uh, so to be a church that really cares about our community, there's so many conversations that we don't have to be experts in, but we need to know how people are trying to navigate life because a lot of people that we're trying to serve in our communities, especially our under-resourced communities, it's not like the big event that has happened that causes them not to trust other people, whether it's church leaders or political leaders, government leaders. It's the thousand Band-Aids. I mean, the thousand little paper cuts that happen over and over and over again that break down trust. So let me, let me do just a quick recap of some things I tried to cover yesterday. Uh, that I think it's important for the church to navigate some social issues. Sometimes when I speak into things happening in the life of our church, and I want to talk... I want to take probably half the class today where I walk you through how Sycamore View has done some of this. And I'm not speaking as an expert or a church that has figured this out. Just a church that's tried to join in the adventure of what it means to navigate some of this. But when I speak into the issues, usually the comments I get from people afterwards who appreciate it, it's not, thank you for telling me exactly how to think about something. Usually the responses I get are something like this. Thank you for giving voice to something in the church. Thank you for talking about it. Um. It's so easy for us to become selective moralists. I talked about this yesterday. And all of us are in some way one, way, one way or the other. That there's a primary lens that all of us have that we engage all of the world through. We have primary lenses. We have secondary lenses. And if we're not careful, it's really easy for that primary lens to become our social media outlet or our news outlet and not the gospel of Jesus. We've got to make sure the primary lens is in place. And there are some issues that we can be, feel really strongly about. I mean, I have people in my church, and I'm sure some of you are really passionate about abortion. And how I want to push some people in my church who this is like the issue in their life is I know people who, have, who are so passionate about the unborn, yet when kids are born into the world in our city, they treat them the rest of their lives as if they've been aborted, and this is not the way of God. So if we're going to care about people coming into the world and being born into the world, we've got to care about things like education reform and And what it means to give dignity and restore dignity. So we got to make sure that we are selected moralists. That we're trying to hold together this pro-life ethic of life. Uh, Also as people in churches who may be concerned about compassion and service and justice. It's easy to get burnt. And it's easy to become weary if we're not rooted and grounded. So yesterday I walked you through Luke 6. Where there is this rhythm of solitude, community and ministry. Because for those who want to be engaged in justice and compassion. If you are not... Deepening your roots in God, you may last 18 months, three years. You're gonna, you're gonna become a worn-out activist, because there aren't, you're not digging deep roots. So we lived in our neighborhood for eight years. A year ago, I came. Uh, my wife and I were going to a barbecue place to, to eat lunch, uh, because that's where Jesus would go on Sunday afternoons if he was in Memphis. Uh, he, eat, Jesus eats pork now, just so everybody knows. All right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and we sat down to, to, there was an older couple in our church, and they were just hungry for God, and they wanted us to go do lunch and talk about discipleship and spiritual formation and spiritual discipline. So we sat down, and, and as the food was coming out, we got a call on my wife's phone from our alarm company that a window broke. And I was like, man, no big deal. Uh, Casey, I'm going to stay here and eat. If you don't mind going checking on our house, seeing what's going on, I'm just joking, all right? I said, <laughs> uh, I wanted to say that, but I was like, baby, stay here. It's probably a false alarm. I'm going to run home. I'll be right back. This was a Sunday afternoon in January. I got home and drove around our house, and sure enough, a window is broken, the curtains flapping out the window. It's like, oh, my goodness, all right, got broken into. Uh, I don't know if you've been broken into before. It's not the best feeling. You feel violated, and I just didn't I didn't know what they took, but also didn't know how my wife or how my boys were going to respond to this. Are they going to have night terrors for weeks and months? Is my wife going to want to move? And, and it's not just neighborhoods like ours in Memphis that gets broken into. This stuff happens all over the place, but... Call the cops. Cops show up. We sweep the house. They just took a couple of TVs. Not a problem. We can replace TVs. But I still didn't know how my wife and my boys were going to respond. So um, as I'm sitting praying, waiting for Casey and the boys to come home, this was a Sunday afternoon in January. I'm in a family that we like sports, so this means the NFL playoffs were going on. And now we don't have TVs. My oldest son is the first one walking in our house, and he walks in. And if you know Trude at all, he's strutting and he's like, Dad, yo, Dad, where are we going to watch the game today, Dad? I hear the TVs are gone, Dad. We got options. Chili's, Buffalo Wild Wings, we can go to a friend's house. I'm like, well, I guess my oldest son is taking this news all right about getting broken into. He just wants to know where we're going to watch the games. My younger son's walking in behind him. He was eight at the time. And Noah comes in and is like, Dad, I already thought about the strategy. We need to go find who did this. You're bigger than me. So dad, you grab them. You throw them on the ground. And when they're on the ground, I'm going to kick them. So my youngest son has revenge on his mind. (laughs) My wife walks in and I hug my wife and I'm in tears. I'm like, baby, I'm so sorry. She's like, it's okay. I was two days away from going on a 10-day trip to Africa with Compassion International. And I said, baby, I'm going to cancel my trip. She says, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. She says, no, you're not. I said, baby, I'm not going to leave you in the hood in Memphis with a broken window that's going to be boarded up that we're not going to be able to fix for four or five days. And she said, Josh, every night you pray over our boys for them not to be afraid. And you stand up in front of our church almost every Sunday and you talk to the Sycamore view people about not being afraid. And it's, she looked at me, and I'm, word for word, she looked at me and she said, it's time for you to practice what you preach. I took a step back, I was like, baby, hey, don't be using my words against me, all right? Don't do that. So two days later, I got on a plane, and I went to Africa, leaving my wife and the two boys there. And what we had to process over the next month was my heart became hard and calloused. I was like, why invest in a community where somebody may do something like this? Is it even worth it? Like, is it even worth trying to build relationships and to love neighbors? Is all this even worth it? And I had to process it, but it was the commitment to solitude, out of solitude, community, and ministry that continued to root me back in the heart of God to prepare me to engage a city with purpose again. Let me, let me walk you, there, there are a few things, so I'm sorry if some of this is going to be scattered, but I, I just want to be helpful to you today and hopefully equip you. Let me walk you through a place in the Bible that's become like my, my go-to place. I love, I love Matthew chapter 16 for a number of reasons, and, and I'm about to show you why. This is a sermon I go back to probably once a year, maybe every year and a half I preach a sermon similar to this at Sycamore View. that comes straight from Matthew 16. In verse 21, it's that from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples. So something just happened that Jesus is coming out of that moment, having taught them and trained them for something. I also love this word explain. If you're taking notes in your Bible, this is a, a Greek word that means to exhibit something that can be apprehended by one or more of the senses. Which I love that definition. This is about bringing the senses to life. So this isn't that Jesus is only teaching them something that's knowledge going into the head. He's opening up their senses and everything they have. It's to prove or make clear by evidence or reasoning, to explain or prove. So he's he's doing something with the mind, but also preparing their entire body, heart, mind, and soul for a mission. Now, what Jesus is responding to from that time on... Uh, if you go back a few verses before that, location is a vital part of understanding Matthew 16. Location matters. It matters to how we think about God. Like where you choose to read the Bible matters. On, it, 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 it's going to change how you interpret the Bible, how you think about the Bible. Charles Campbell wrote about the difference between social location and physical location in his book Word on the Streets years ago. And what he argues for is that all of us have a social location. And what social location means is Uh, For example, I am a white American male who grew up in a two-parent home. Um, I have a wife and two kids. My wife and I both grew up in pretty healthy homes. We grew up in Texas. We now live in Memphis. So all these things uh, form our social location. And whether we like it or not, it has an impact on how we engage all of the world and how we interpret and engage the Bible. You can't escape your social location. What Charles Campbell argues for is there are times where we need to take the Bible and like change our physical location so we're engaging the Bible outside of quote-unquote safe context. And not that God isn't working inside of this room here at Pepperdine or in the Bible classes in our churches or in our homes, but a lot of things change when you take a story of Jesus touching a person with leprosy and you go and you read and interpret that from the waiting room of an AIDS clinic or an ER in a hospital. Or you read about the Sermon on the Mount, but you read it from a food court in a shopping mall where you're bombarded by advertisements and you're reading and listening to what Jesus has to say about greed and materialism in a context like that. So Matthew 16 is a story uh, of Jesus taking them to a specific location. What movie is up here on the screen right now? Somebody say it. Yeah, Remember the Titans. One of the greatest sports movies of all times. If you disagree, you're wrong, all right? Love, remember the Titans. What is this scene right here? Tell me what's happening. Somebody say it loud. Gettysburg. Yeah, it's a Gettysburg. Um, I, I like this scene for a number of reasons. If you've seen Remember the Titans, for a lot of people, like this is this is a moment people remember from uh, Remember the Titans. Coach Boone wakes them up early in the morning, takes them on a jog. His team. So you have a. If you don't know this movie, it's a white kids, black kids. They're It's in the time of integration. They're on a football team. They're out at a camp for a few days by themselves, and he wakes them up early in the morning, takes them on a jog. They end up at Gettysburg. And this is where there's a a three-and-a-half-minute speech that, in my opinion, is the best part of the movie. Now, he could have given the exact same speech word for word in the cafeteria where they were staying, but it wouldn't have had the same impact. He could have given that same speech on a football field after practice. It wouldn't have had the same impact. It's something about Coach Boone taking his team to this place where blood was 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 spilled, where, where people died, for, for a cause. The taking them there and teaching them, hey, if we don't change, like the same thing's going to happen again. So there are times where Jesus takes location very seriously, and I've come to believe this to the core of who I am: the wear of discipleship. Often, and I don't want to say always, but it often prepares the way for the what, why, and how of discipleship. Where do we think of God? How do we think of God? So the where of discipleship matters. So here's how this story goes. When Jesus came through the region of Caesarea Philippi, a lot of times we read about regions in the Bible and we kind of skip over them. But what you need to know about Caesarea Philippi, it's on the way to nowhere. Like you don't accidentally end up in Caesarea Philippi. You don't go through Caesarea Philippi to get to Jerusalem. Jesus in his day would not have done this. This is going out of their way. Uh, I was able to go on a trip with my parents and my wife, and we took about 80 people. Uh, they had two busfuls, and we went to Israel a few months ago. So this is me at Caesarea Philippi. Uh, and I was, It's a story that means so much to me. To be there was so awesome. It would have looked something like this back in the days of Jesus. Caesarea Philippi was a, was a city um, full of all kinds of immorality. The God Pan, P-A-N, was half God, half human, half goat, half human, God of infertility. There was all kinds of immorality there. And if you were in Caesarea Philippi, today you still see these. It's like little crevices up in the wall where they would have put all kind of false idols. So it's a city where you could have seen immorality, smelt immorality, heard immorality. And Jesus takes them what would have been, I think, 20 to 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee to Caesarea Philippi. And as Jesus began that journey with his disciples, I can just imagine their conversations were, they're looking at each other saying, dude, we are going to the place where mom and dad like, taught us all of our lives, Like, if I ever catch you going to that place, like you're going to be grounded for a long time. This is like my mom saying, if I ever catch you at Hooters as a 17 or 18-year-old, like you are not coming out of your house for weeks or months, uh, nobody would go to Caesarea Philippi. Yet Jesus takes him there, and this is what he does. He takes him there and says, who do people say the Son of Man is? So of all places for Jesus to take his apostles, to ask them, like, who is Jesus? Who do people say I am? So he begins asking kind of a broader question. Who do people say I am? The response is some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or the prophets. And Jesus said, but what about you? So now it's more personal. What about you? And who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Of all places for Jesus to take him to give them a serious lesson about what the local church is supposed to be about. He took them to a place full of all kinds of immorality. And there he talks to them about where the church is going to be founded upon, what it's going to be founded upon. And it's like Jesus is saying in a world that has gone crazy, that he has come to set people on fire and the church on fire to penetrate those same places. When you see about the gates of Hades, gates is not an... a a posture of offense, it's a posture of defense. It's that Hades is setting up a gate knowing that the force of God is pressing into the world. The church is called to be a force in the world, which means we have to take seriously what is going on in the world so we know how to navigate it. Is this making sense to anybody? We good? Uh, so, So Sycamore, we have tried to take this seriously in a number of ways. Um, and and I, want, I want you to believe that there is a way for us to equip people to engage social issues without losing our soul and without selling out to a party. There's a way to do this. Uh, I preached a sermon series last uh, summer. It was a five-week series. It was a fun series, something i wanted to do a long time. I called it Bible Tweets. There are five books in the Bible that are one chapter each. Obadiah, Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. Jude's straight-up crazy. All right, I went ahead and preached Jude. Uh, it was a bad sermon because it's just a bad book. Don't tell Jude I said that. Don't tell Randy Harris I said that because he ends everything with the end of Jude. Uh, Jude's a good book. Forgive me for saying that. All right, But the first sermon was about Obadiah. If I were to ask anybody in here to tell me what is Obadiah about, I bet very few of you could tell me what Obadiah... You, would, you probably don't even know where to find Obadiah in your Bible. But Obadiah is a book about Israelites who are being oppressed... And it's an indictment upon the Edomites. And the Edomites weren't doing the oppressing. The Edomites weren't oppressing the Israelites. The book of Obadiah is written as an indictment against the Edomites because the Edomites are looking over and they see the Israelites being oppressed. And the Edomites do nothing about it. The indictment is you stood still. Now tell me that wouldn't preach in all of our churches, right? You see something happening... And you chose to stand still. So as I preached that sermon that day, I set up two stools. I kind of kind of tried to paint this picture of here's Israelites, and there's the Edomites. Israelites are being oppressed, and all of us have been in the position of where the Edomites were at some point in our life before. And sometimes it's not that we see some form of oppression and our hearts are cold and hard, and we just, we don't, we just say we don't want to do anything about it. A lot of times we don't do something because we don't know what to do. But I think this is why people are passionate about something like abortion. Because they see something happening and they don't want to stay still. They want to do something about it. I think this is why people in some of our churches were concerned about what's going on or are concerned about what's going on on the southern border. Because they see something happening and they don't want to stand still. And couldn't we go through a lot of issues about this? So I think there is a way for us to talk about these things without losing our soul or without selling out to a party. The Sycamore View Church, we've been in our location now for 40 years. In 1979, 78, 79, we opened up our facility where we are right on the bridge between urban life and uh, suburban life. In the 70s, we left the city and we moved out. You fast forward 25, 30 years, the suburbs went way past our church. So now we kind of found ourselves right in the middle. Before I got there, back in 2005, 2006, the Sycamore View leaders, through a season of prayer and fasting, were trying to decide whether they want to stay in that location or move further out. They chose to stay in that location. And as they did, they had a Sunday, and when I interviewed there, I saw the pictures, and it sold me on the vision of the church. That they had a Sunday where every family unit in the church took a smaller cross, went out in the front yard of our church, nailed it into the ground, forming a larger cross. And it was a day that they were saying, we're we're establishing roots here and we're asking God to do great things in and through this church right here in this location, knowing that that neighborhood was a transient community. And then what I loved is that the church started to pray really big prayers. That God, if we're going to stay here, we need you to teach us how to love our neighbors, how to care about our neighbors. And God began answering those prayers. Uh, As a church, as we grew a deeper love for the city, we found ourselves about five years ago being pulled in a lot of different ways, being connecting with nonprofits, and we found ourselves pulled in probably 20, 25 different ways. Have you you been in a church before where you feel so pulled, it's just wearing people out? You know what I'm saying? So I led our leaders, our elders and our ministers through a conversation of, hey, we've got to identify a few strategic partners so we can do this better. We can't serve 30 nonprofits and people. Let's try to identify 10. So we shrunk this our process and our, our connections. We call them our strategic partners. It includes seven nonprofits and the three schools around us. So an elementary school, middle school, high school. In the city of Memphis, or in the state of Tennessee, you have 81 schools who are in the lower 5% in the state of Tennessee. 69 of the 84 are in the city of Memphis. So we partner with elementary school, middle school, high school to provide encouragement to faculty. We now have free reign on campuses. We can set up prayer boxes in teachers' lounges, and we don't have to code it with encouragement boxes. Uh, And we've taken over Teacher Appreciation Week. There are some wonderful things God has done in and through these connections. Uh, God continued to grow our love for our community. And as he did this, social issues keep bubbling up. So here's let me uh, let me flip over to another PowerPoint presentation. I just want to walk you through, and I hope this will be helpful to someone here. I want to walk you through a conversation I led our leaders through on this. And I hope this will be helpful. So <clears throat> about two years ago, I took the to Sycamore View elders and ministers. So at the time, I had 20 elders and seven ministers. So imagine a room of 25 to 30 of us. And I am just going to walk them through a conversation about Christ and culture. Now, Part of our uh, leadership team and how we do it at Sycamore View is we have a vision team that's made up of myself. The executive minister, when we have one, Eric Wilson, was that, and he's faded out. So right now it's one minister, five elders. So we have a vision team of six people. So together as a vision team, we came up with this process and I presented it to the church, to, to our leaders. And I just walked them through this. like, How do we equip and empower Sycamore View members to faithfully navigate cultural shifts and issues? And then I mean a few scriptures that we keep coming back to that I think really does speak into this. Ephesians 4:12 is that the call of church leaders is to equip the saints for the works of service. And I think we're trying to equip them in ways where people are going deeper into the heart of God, but I think a part of equipping too is equipping people on how to navigate culture around us, staying committed to the cause of Christ and all that we do. First Timothy 3:7, I referenced this yesterday, but this is in the characteristics of elders that one of them is he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil, which means you have to have some kind of connection with people from the outside. In Colossians 4, 5, and 6, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech be full of, uh, always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. So here are a few things we laid out. The, the the vision team is not suggesting, so, so from the very beginning as we're trying to navigate all this, we're not suggesting that we create position papers for every social issue facing us today. That would be, in my opinion, a nightmare. Maybe some of you have done that in your churches and it worked. For us, it would be a nightmare. It would be so much time spent on trying to develop position papers that we wouldn't be discipling our people well. The vision team is not suggesting that we become an issue-driven church. Our mission is helping people see Jesus. Our vision is to be about the restoration of hearts, relationships, and communities throughout the world. So as we navigate any of this, we've got to keep mission and vision at the forefront of who we are and what God has us for. And we're not suggesting, and I wasn't suggesting, that the Sunday morning stage is the best place for us to discuss some of this. Uh, what we are suggesting, what we did suggest, is that we want to be a church that isn't afraid of any conversation. That the church should be the training ground for engaging all of life through our faith in Jesus. So we don't want to be a church that ever tells someone that, hey, that conversation isn't welcome here. That we want to be able to talk about things. Knowing that, hey, we're not all going to be on the same page about stuff, but the church should be a, the place where because of the bread, cup, and waters of baptism, it brings us together to talk through life. That the vision team, our vision team, wasn't suggesting that we continue to use... Uh, or we were suggesting that we continue to use forums to create healthy atmospheres to discuss, to discuss sensitive issues. And I'll talk about that more here in just a moment. And that the purpose of dialogue is not to p- tell people how to think. And I think this is so important. But to give voice to the culture and to gain healthy understanding. That I don't think it's the role of the church to tell people exactly how to think about every issue, but that we are giving people a healthy toolbox That we're equipping them to think about the gospel in everything you do. Because it's really easy to sell ourselves out to other forms of of media and news outlets, right? So here's what we did. Here's what I did that night. With each topic, there will be two questions. Number one is, how important is this issue to the general public of our church? So we're talking about the membership. And how important is it that we give voice to and empower people to faithfully engage in this discussion? And on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you answer the following? 1 not important, 10 extremely important. So every issue, what we were asking was, I want you to answer this in light of in how you think about the membership of Sycamore View. How, how important is it that we give voice to this in the life of our church? But then I also wanted the, the leaders to take time to think about, okay, the surrounding community around us, that we are trying to love the way God wants us to love. How important is this issue for them? Because I think it can be easy for the church to say, what about our church, yet not think about what people outside of our church are thinking. So we just wanted to see if the data, how much it would line up, how much it would be different, and we thought that would tell us something, and it did. Um, so how important is it that we equip and empower Sycamore View members to faithfully navigate faith and culture? How important is it that we give voice to and empower people to faithfully engage in this discussion? All right, so... Um, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, so here were the social issues we just walked through, and, and I don't wanna spend time on each one of these, but we answered with LGBTQ, on race, generational divide, domestic violence, immigration, the phrase Black Lives Matter, academic achievement gaps, So we're talking about education, education reform, refugees, pornography, engaging millennials, politics, economic disparity, mental illness, the environment, marriage and family, materialism, wealth and greed. And I know I went through those fast. We could have had 20 others up there. But we felt for our context, we wanted to focus on those 17. So, we put together the data and it was helpful to us for for the church, the things that were at the very top were marriage and family. It was helping empower people how to think about LGBTQ Uh, for the community, immigration, because the schools that we um, have adopted, they are now, just for the first time in the last two years, the majority of kids in our middle school and high school are Latino. So it's forcing our church to think about a culture we haven't had to spend much time thinking about because for a long time Memphis was primarily a white-black city. So then we had to talk about what are the, what are the right forums. You know, and, and, and in all of this, we didn't lo- want to lose sight of helping people develop deeper spiritual disciplines in their lives and tapping into God. We didn't want this to become the primary way that we're trying to help people to think about the world. We just wanted to help people as they engage conversations probably every day in their lives to think hard about the gospel as they do. So one of the ways we do this is through forums. And we've had probably seven or eight of these and we don't do it on a Sunday morning, and we don't do it on a Wednesday night. We do a two-hour forum during the week. And on these, we've, we've talked about multiple issues. Uh, we've, we've done marriage and family. We've talked to about single adults. We've talked about racism, LGBTQ. And it's just a two-hour forum where I host it. We had a faith and doubt night, but I, I bring in people, and we have Q&As. And it's, it's, been, it's been an environment where it just feels right. What this also led to was I preached a sermon series back in February called Taboo. So out of this, as we were thinking and praying, over the last 18 months, there were a few issues that began to come to the forefront of conversation I was in. So I went to the elders about five months ago, and I said, guys, I feel the need to preach a series. I would like to call it Taboo, and there are three specific issues that keep coming up in conversations that I'm in about sexual abuse in the Me Too movement, mental health, and immigration. And when I walked through those, sexual abuse, the look of the elders was like, "Mm, maybe we could do that one. Mental health, it was like unanimous. We need to do that one. And immigration, and it was almost unanimous. We don't need to do that one. (laughs) It was was like, man. But here's here's why I felt like it was so important to speak into those. As we were listening to the church for the last 18 months, these were issues that kept coming up among people. There have been three times... And I'm, I'm not getting political in how I talk about this. It's been three times in the last two years that an overwhelming number of women have reached out to me for prayer because of sexual abuse in their past, and trauma was reawakened. Uh, wherever you are politically, it does, I don't really care. Um, but the night when President Trump was elected, within 48 hours, I had seven women who reached out to me asking for prayer, who had experienced sexual abuse in their past. At the time, there were about 20 allegations against President Trump, and I think some of those seven women even voted for him. Yet trauma can be reawakened in times we don't even know it. And it wasn't up to me And those, when those seven women reached out. It, I didn't feel like it was my place to respond by saying, well, you just need to pray for your leaders. Something being reawakened, and I needed to hear their story. We had a case in Memphis, I say a case, we had a situation in Memphis where there was a larger mega church, where an associate pastor got caught up in a story that went national, went global. That 20 years ago he was on staff at a church in Houston where he had an inappropriate encounter or a sexual abuse case as a 22-year-old with a 17-year-old in the church. And though this was a story that happened in Memphis, it reawakened trauma people in our church, women in our church who had experienced sexual abuse in their past and who had kept it, one, one thing that came up in that situation was how can someone stay silent about sexual abuse for 20 years and not tell anybody? So I began hearing from a few women in our church who were telling me why they had stayed silent about theirs for years. And the third one was Judge Kavanaugh. That I had multiple women in that time reach out to me and this was a really interesting one. Because I think there are those who identify with the Me Too movement, who the moment there is an accusation, whoever it is being accused, that without even hearing them out, that it's they're guilty and they're monsters. And that's not fair. We do have a system set up in America. But what also happened in that case was it seemed like there were people who, because of their conservative convictions and desire to have a conservative Supreme Court justice, when it came down to it about that, it just didn't matter if it happened 20 or 30 years ago or not. All right, So three different cases where I hear multiple stories. So I preached a sermon on sexual abuse, the Me Too movement, Church to movement. In all the sermons I've preached in my 17-year preaching career, I have not preached a sermon that had that many responses from people within my church and outside the church. Within 48 hours, and I'm not exaggerating about this, and I'm also not telling this to brag on me. At 75 women reach out to me, and I know women aren't the only ones who experience sexual abuse. At 75 women reach out not just saying thanks but sharing their story. 75 people. And what some of them said was, "I've been in church all my life and I've never had a church leader give voice to this before." I felt the need to speak on mental illness because this is an epidemic in our society today. And we have people in our church who are overwhelmed by anxiety and they don't know why. And these are some of the hardest times that, when I sit with people. These are some of the hardest conversations I have. Because when I look at someone who has a heart for God, yet they don't know why they are experiencing depression or anxiety, and they have begged God to take it away, I don't know why God wouldn't just take that away. So I spent a Sunday and I talked about mental illness. Now the immigration one was the hardest one for me to work our leaders through. Because this is a lightning. I mean, mention the word immigration in your church and and fireworks start going off, right? Just mention the word. And I didn't feel like it was my role that day to tell people how to think about a wall or how not to think about a wall. Uh, But what really got me thinking about this one was there was a LifeWay research done back in 2010. I know this was nine years ago. LifeWay Research, LifeWay, is a Southern Baptist organization. So if you fill out a survey for LifeWay, there's a good chance that you're probably identifying as a conservative evangelical or a conservative Christian, right? A thousand people filled out a survey for LifeWay in 2010. And they were asked a number of things about certain issues. Issues within the church, but also social issues. And the question they were asked about social issues was, what are the primary Uh, What are the primary forms that are, what are the primary ways that are forming your view on this issue? And people were given options. So they're not just writing in the primary thing that's forming their view on an issue, they are given options to circle. You with me? When it came to immigration, only 12% of people said the Bible. Out of a thousand people who filled out a survey, when asked, what is the primary source forming your view on immigration? only 12% of people said the Bible. The top two were news outlets and relationships. So your coffee group, lunch group, the people you hang out with. And I thought, if 88% of people aren't circling the Bible, maybe we have a problem. Pew Research in 2015, and Pew Research isn't necessarily religious, but they did research, and what they, that the question they asked, for people who were Christians when it came to immigration was almost the same exact same question Lifeway asked. And only 4% of people said religion was the primary thing that formed their view on immigration. So as I was talking to the elders, my elders back four to five months ago, what we thought was, well, good grief. If people are being formed by this issue, more by what is happening in the world and conversations than by the Bible, maybe we need to think about this. And what's really interesting is that the Bible speaks more about immigration than the Bible speaks about Me Too or about mental illness, because the Bible didn't really have categories for it. Yet it was a lightning rod. But it was helpful for our church. And I didn't feel like it was my job. My my job that day was to help people see, what what does the Bible say? And what does it mean for us to help understand the plight of the immigrant better? To understand the places in the Bible that do talk about the law of the land? And have an ethic of love that Jesus gives us. And that there is a way for you to hold all these together. And you don't have to choose one over the other. Like your first Peter about obeying the laws of the land doesn't have to become the ultimate trump card. that trumps everything else. And Luke 10 of the Good Samaritan doesn't have to trump everything else. Like you can hold these together and have an ethic of life that matters. So... In our church, we're still in the process of trying to navigate these without losing our soul, while we are still keep in front of our people the mission and the vision of Jesus. Yet, trying to equip them how to navigate life and how to think about the gospel in everything they do. Uh, I want to end with one story, and then I've got to run. I've got a flight because I got to get home. It may sound I got to get home to see some little league baseball with my boys. All right. And I told Mike Cope, I was like, dude, I love Pepperdine, but you get it because you used to go home to see Little League. I got to get home to see Little League. And he's like, go home to see Little League. So I'm about to go jump on a flight. Leafwood Publisher brought a book of reentry, a book I wrote a couple years ago, and would love for somebody to take this home. So I'm going to leave it up here. It's signed. Come and get it. Um, wh- whoever wants that, uh, take it home. I signed it. My mom didn't sign it. My mom has signed a lot of my books for other people in the past. And, and I said, mom... When you do this, what do you sign? Do you sign my name? And she's like, no, she signs, she signs her own names in my books for other people. I, it's the craziest thing. And she leaves a note for them in there. Like she has her sign off. And it's, I was like, so you did this just for one? She's like, no, I do this for anybody lined up buying your books. I, I sign them with Beverly Ross. I guess moms, moms can do that. <clears throat> I love the metaphor of the church being a hospital. That in many ways we are. That the church needs to be a safe place for people to come with their questions, their experiences, their doubts, their confusions. That they come and they know that they're going to be loved and embraced for who they are. And I love that image. I think we can unpack that image. Jesus talks about one of the places where Jesus says, I came for this reason is I came for the sick. So the church is called to be a hospital, but that is a metaphor that breaks down in a lot of ways too. Because the church isn't just a hospital. Because usually hospitals, in a way, just follow me here, kind of waits for where the sick to come to to the hospital. And the church isn't called to be a hospital in a sense that we've been given a mission where we're not just waiting for people to come to us. we're, We're going out. Like we're going out. Jesus went out to find the sick people, not just waited for them to come to him. So we are a hospital where we're trying to take in people with, their faith and doubt and everything that comes with it and take them as they are, but we're also trying to prepare our people to go out and navigate this life everywhere they go. Um, I don't want to leave and go jump on a plane without giving you a way to reach out to me. So uh, my if you have an issue with anything I've said the last two days, my email address is beverly.ross <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> My, I would love to talk to anybody here. My, my email is josh, Ross, josh J-O-S-H-R-O-S-S, one five at gmail.com. Would love to, you can find me on, I think, social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, would we'll love to hear from you. Let me pray for you, and I hope the rest of your time here is, uh, is filled with God. Amen. I pray, God, for the men and women in this room. That you will use today and you'll use the next few days to empower them, to equip them, to speak light into their darkness, to bring them to life in every way imaginable. God, I pray for the church leaders in this room. that you, I ask today that you give them great wisdom and courage and boldness. My prayer is not just that you give them a vision for what it means to lead the church, but that you give them the courage to live out the vision you give them, even when it hurts. Draw us closer to Jesus, for you are the source of life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.